The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We have a summer study on prayer. We're beginning tonight, and we're going to look at different aspects of prayer. Uh, prayer is one of the great blessings of the Christian life. Uh, also for me, and I think for many others, uh, one of the great challenges as well. Uh, so much power, so much uh, blessing is attended with prayer uh, that it's not a surprise that Satan would work against it uh, at every turn in the road. And later on this summer, we're going to talk about some of the challenges to a faithful prayer life. But I think uh, tonight I just want to begin by looking at the commands that God gives us to pray. I think uh, that's just a good place to start. Sometimes in the Christian life, you just need to go back to the basic fundamental concept that God has commanded me to do this, and if I love God, I'm going to obey His commands. And that helps cut through the fog, doesn't it? It helps cut through the fog in, in terms of witnessing, evangelism, missions, all of that, to say, you know, I may not feel like doing this, but God has commanded me to do this, and I want to be faithful. I want to be uh, consistent. I want to be active in this. Uh, same thing with Bible reading. You may struggle with having a daily quiet time and taking in the Word of God. You may not feel like doing it. But I think it's just the key to the Christian life that we're going to do what God has commanded us to do. We're going to do what God has commanded us to do. Hey, Eric. Remember me? Yeah, good. Good to see you again. Yeah. Well, thank you. Welcome back to you, too. All right. It's kind of reunion night here at uh, FBC. At any rate, uh, yeah, we're going to do God's commands. And let's remember, we are not saved by obedience to the laws of God. We are not justified by our faithfulness to obey the laws of God. That is not the case. However, it is easy to prove from Scripture that having been justified, we are then freed up to obey the laws of God. That uh, we are enabled by the power of the indwelling spirit, by being new creations in Christ, to fully obey the commands of God. Now, we know that we struggle with the flesh and that we're not going to be perfectly obedient. But I know this, we are able to obey the commands of God. So for us to know that we are commanded to pray is important. It's, a, it's an important building block. Now, as I studied and as I looked at the inducements, let's call it this way, the inducements to pray, I started bringing out some categories uh, in the area of commands. All right. First of all, there are just simple, direct, verbal commands. They're just verses that tell us that God wants us to pray. And we're going to look at those tonight. That's what we're focusing on tonight. The other categories we're not looking at tonight. But that, these would just be verses that in which the imperative voice is used, that God or Jesus or the apostle, somebody is telling us that we should pray. That's one of the responsibilities of the Christian life. All right, well, that's simple. But then there are some other things. There are positive statements that God would make about prayer. And that would be an inducement. If God commends prayer in some place without openly commanding it, that is, in effect, a command to pray, isn't it? Uh, and so, frankly, to some degree, all of the promises of, of God concerning prayer uh, really are, uh, in some way, commands to pray. If God promises lavishly to bless uh, prayer, then he clearly expects us to pray. Uh, that just makes sense. And we're going to look at, at, at promises concerning prayer another time, not tonight. But uh, they would give us a sense of command as well. Then there are positive examples commended, uh, commanded uh, showing the blessings of prayer. So basically, as you look at uh, the Bible, there are uh, many praying men and women whose lives are so blessed because they prayed that that becomes, in effect, a command of God to us to live in that way. 
And that would be true of many aspects of the Christian life. Um, but I think it comes with prayer. Some of them are almost, I mean, they're, they, they really are so close to a command that you almost can read it that way. Think of, for example, Samuel, when he says something like this, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Now, if I know that's not a command, but come on, that's about as close as it comes. That, it, that he considered it a sin to stop praying for the people of God. And if Samuel considered that, it's clearly written in the Bible to give us a sense of inducement that we ought to be praying for the people of God. And uh, other aspects, you, you see positive and negative examples. S- clearly a contrast between David, who consistently inquired of the Lord, shall I go up and attack or shall we pursue? You know, what shall we do? And God would answer him. And then uh, Saul, who didn't inquire of the Lord, but inquired rather of a medium, the witch at Endor, and dies in that. You know, it's just such a clear contrast how David inquired of the Lord, but how Saul did not. And it's not hard to read through that a command that we should inquire of the Lord. We should be asking God for his blessing on our lives. We should be asking God for wisdom. Should we be involved in this or that? Should we go forth and, and do this or that ministry? So there are positive examples and negative examples in the Bible. Positive examples of, of lives blessed because people prayed. And then negative examples of those that did not seek the face of the Lord, did not inquire of God. Um, and did not care what God thought and how those lives are, are cursed. And then there are uh, promises with implied commands, as we've said. You know, these are just different things uh, that we're going to look at. I'm just going to set that aside. I've already mentioned it even this evening. Parables teaching prayer. Uh, Jesus gives us many parables. Uh, one, of, one, of, uh, one of those is going to show up tonight. Again, I was just looking for imperatives or commands. So uh, in the parable of the persistent widow... Luke introduces it saying, then Jesus told them a prayer, teaching them that they should always pray and never give up. Well, that seems like a command to me, right? So that made it tonight because it's, uh, you know, the word should is a command. Uh, so Jesus told this parable for that reason. But even aside from that, there are numerous parables that uh, show certain aspects of, of a life of prayer and uh, how God will bless it. And these uh, commend prayer to us, if not directly commanding it. And then uh, in the book of Revelation, we have these bowls of incense that are the prayers of the saints, you know. And uh, again, you know, how can you read that and not think, I need to be active in prayer, that my prayer goes up as an, as an incense before God. You know, you have similar, a similar effect really in the book of Psalms as you have, and I think so many of the Psalms, there are actually very few commands uh, for prayer in the Psalms, very few, but there are many, many examples of prayer. And uh, so that would be in the earlier category of positive examples. The book of Psalms is filled with positive examples of prayer. Really, one psalm in particular is almost nothing but uh, a prayer, Psalm 119, in which everything's in the second person. You this and you that. Uh, it's really a beautiful example of an con- extended prayer based on the Word of God. So these are all different categories of ways that God lets us know that prayer is to be part of the healthy Christian life. We are to be praying. Now, for me, I need this. I need this. Satan is always working on our prayer lives, working on my prayer life. And uh, one of the ways he does that is to convince us that prayer really doesn't achieve anything, that uh, prayer uh, really nothing happens, that, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I've had the hardest time shaking is this concept that, you know, God and his wisdom and his sovereignty, he is king of the universe, he has studied every single thing thoroughly, 
His wisdom no one can fathom. He hasn't asked me for advice and never will. Why do I need to pray about anything? I want him to do what he wants to do, right? So why should I pray? I've, I've had that thought really through my whole Christian life. You know, God is a king. He's sovereign. He does so many things without prayer. It troubles me when man-centered teaching on prayer says that God, in effect, does nothing apart from prayer. Um, there are so many things that God has done that no one prayed for. Can you think of any like really, really, really big thing that God did and you know no one prayed for that? That created the universe. That would be a very good example of something God did not do in response to prayer. Susan, you had a question earlier? Yeah. Whether you do it out loud or whether you Absolutely. do it online. Absolutely. Absolutely. Things like the early conversations that, let's say, Abram had with God where the Bible says the Lord said to him and then that's, and then he said to the Lord, mm-hmm. those are prayers. Absolutely. Any, anything we say, any kind of conversation that we have with God uh, at all, um, I, I think that's important. And, and then if, if you're going to accept that definition, which really you, you do, that's, that's what prayer is, communicating with God, talking to God then you can see how much evidence and how many verses there would be in the Bible uh, that would uh, talk to us about prayer. So it's a really big topic uh, that we're looking at this summer. I believe so. I believe so. God communicates to us. Uh, He communicates clearly in the Bible and he communicates by the indwelling spirit. He definitely does. Um, so I, I believe I believe in that. But uh, for me, uh, as we're talking here tonight, I'm going to narrow or focus on New Testament commands or imperatives to pray. That's what I was. That was my filter. And then what I did once I drew out all of that biblical evidence, I then categorized it a certain number of ways. So there are general commands to pray. We're going to look at that from the New Testament tonight. We're going to look at prayer commanded in a certain manner. So in which uh, there's certain aspects of our character traits or how we should be in prayer. I pulled those off to the side. Uh, Character traits needed for prayer. Um, Prayer for the advance of the gospel. There are many of those. Many of those kinds of things. Uh, And we'll look at that tonight. Prayer in trying circumstances. You may be in a time of affliction or sickness. And we are commanded to pray in those kinds of times. Prayer for specific spiritual blessings. Uh, The one I have in mind most clearly is wisdom. Uh, so we should be praying to God for wisdom. We'll talk about that. Uh, persistence in prayer. We are commanded to pray and not give up. And so there's numbers of prayers like that. And uh, prayer for certain categories or types of people. We should be praying for certain kinds of people. And we're given commands to pray for them. So these are just suggestions. I went through. I was pretty thorough, but I may have missed some. And uh, these may not be the best categories for these verses, but let's, uh, let's start looking at them. And really the power of tonight's uh, teaching is not in these categories or any of my prefatory comments here, but in the scriptures themselves. So as we're going to look verse by verse, my desire is simply this. I believe we pray based on faith, and I believe the word of God strengthens our faith. So if you're weak in prayer, be strengthened tonight, brothers and sisters. Let the word of God strengthen your faith so that as a result of this study tonight, be more faithful and more fervent in prayer. That's, all, that's my desire is that God would use this teaching time in the Word tonight to strengthen your hearts for prayer because I believe that God will bless and answer our prayers as we, as we do it. So let's start with just general commands to prayer. And this is uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught us this in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. It says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Now rightly, this could be taught on, uh, in the evening that we teach on promises connected with prayer. But do you not see the commands as well? Ask. 
seek and knock. Those are three commands given. And we know it has to do with prayer, doesn't it? All right, what, as you look at that verse, what inducements does God give you here to obey these commands? You're going to get results. Everyone who asks, it's really almost a bit, I'm not in any way critiquing Jesus' teaching style here, but a bit pedantic. It's repetitive. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. But, you know, I almost feel like we are so thick-headed that we have to have this kind of repetition. We have a hard time believing these statements. You know, we have a hard time believing that if we ask, anything will be given to us. If we seek, we actually will find. And if we knock on the door, he's actually going to open the door to us. Okay, so that's a command from Jesus. We ought to be praying. Turn the page, and this is a very, very important uh, teaching, John 15, verse 7 and 8. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, I could use this verse to teach a lot of things. As a matter of fact, as I've taught in various settings on, on the power of Scripture memorization, I would say that this is probably my number one verse in the whole Bible on memorization. You know, I think it's more powerful than Psalm 119, verse 9 and 11, or, or some of the, these others that people use for memorization. I think this is a tremendous verse on Scripture memorization. Do, do you not see it? If you remain in me or abide or dwell in me, that means have an ongoing relationship with Jesus, like a vine and the branch, uh, you know, that kind of intimate connection. You stay connected with me, walking with me intimately. If you remain in me and, what's the next phrase? What does he say? My words, plural, dwell, remain, abide, live in you. There it is. See, that's to me, that's memorization. I don't know how you do that. How do you have Jesus' words dwelling or living or remaining in you if you don't have them in your mind. And so it's at least meditation, if not the discipline of, of uh, memorization. But these are just conditions, okay? If and if. All right, what is he... If those two things are the case, you're dwelling in Jesus and his words are remaining in you, those things, check both of those boxes. What does he give you next? What does he give you? Not yet. Ask, what is that? It's a command. Having met these criteria, I'm now going to give you a command. All right? I'm going to tell you to ask. Ask me for something. Ask whatever you wish. So in other words, if you have a healthy relationship with Jesus, and if you have his word just ruminating in your mind, you're going to have a fruitful life of prayer. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit proving yourselves to be my disciples. So he's again promising answers, promising results, promising fruit if you meet the criteria. But the center of it is a command that we should ask him, ask him for anything. So that's very, very powerful. And the thing you just have to do is you're sitting there listening to me tonight and say, you know, am I meeting that Am I meeting uh, those qualifications, those criteria? Am I dwelling with Jesus? Am I abiding with him? And am I having that ongoing walk with him that I need to? Is my relationship with Jesus intact? And if it's not, you just begin with 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and restore you to that healthy relationship with Jesus. And then, you know, are you meditating on the word of God? Have you taken it in? I would commend memorization, but you don't, you don't have to do that. 
Just, I think, to have God's words, Jesus' words, just living inside you. Take your pocket Bible with you and take them out if you don't want to memorize. Look at it, all right? You know, whatever it takes, but get God's word in you. Then you've got this command that you should ask. Uh, to me, this reminds me very much of what it said earlier in John's gospel when Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you, you would have asked him for something. Now, of course, it's living water there. But in other words, my take from that is the better you know Jesus, the more you're going to ask him for things. You're not taxing him. He's not going to run out of resources. He's not burdened by it. That The fact is, every one of us asks for too little. All of us. All of us. I mean, look at the very next one. Somebody read this one, John 16, 24. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So what does the first half of that say to you? Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. What do you get out of that? Well, Jesus was with the disciples at that mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and so they were not going to go through him, so to speak, mm-hmm. to talk to the Father, because he was there physically with them. Very good, and that's a wonderful answer set properly in redemptive history and in context. But it also points to a timeless problem. There's a timeless problem here. Until now, you've not asked me for anything. How many times could Jesus just step right into the middle of a situation in your life and tell you that? Up to this point today, you've not asked me for anything. I think the fact of the matter is we don't ask him for much. We don't ask him for enough. We don't ask him for his hand of blessing on this or that or the other situation. We tend to worry, tend to fret, tend to try to plan, work it out ourselves. We are far too independent. And I think one of the greatest ways that we can express our dependence to God is by saturating our lives with uh, prayer, by asking him for something. And so I, I love Susan's answer because Susan's answer, it was set beautifully in redemptive history. There, there were a certain place Jesus had not yet gone to the Father and all that. But I do believe also that there's a timeless problem. You do not have because you do not ask God. You know, it says that in James. That's a problem that we have. The reason that we don't receive is that we don't ask. Same thing like when I was teaching in Matthew 21. If you believe, you receive whatever you ask for in prayer, Matthew 21, 22. That's a promise, so it's not in our study tonight. But basically what, I'm, what, I'm, what I said there is that, yeah, you've got your name it and claim it people, and they go too far, and they ask for fleshly things, you know, with misplaced confidence for the, the wrong things. They're asking for the wrong things. Like James says, and you continue that verse where he says, when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So there's a problem there. That's the name and claim of people. But most Christians have the opposite problem. That is, we ask uh, God for nothing based on that, on that text. That's our problem, under-asking. Jesus here at the center of, of John 16, 24, just as in the center of John 15, 7, there's a command, ask me for something. I Susan, go ahead. Well, that's another issue. Namely, we ask amiss. Uh, you know, asking in his name means to ask according to his character, according to that which is revealed about his purposes, his plans, his character. And that's a good point. And I'd like to develop that more f- uh, f- uh, fully later in the summer. But uh, that's very, very important. Uh, let's, let's keep moving. Uh, Jesus also gives us commands to pray in a certain manner. And there's actually an extended treatment on this in the Sermon on the Mount. So I I just decided to just bring the whole passage in here. And there's aspects of prayer that Jesus is is shooting down concerning the Pharisees, those that prayed, you know, the the self-righteous hypocrites that prayed in a certain open manner for certain earthly benefits. Um, But then Jesus gives us more specific aspects of prayer. 
All right, so Matthew 6, uh, 5 through 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard uh, because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins." Well, that's a wealth of teaching on prayer there. And we really could spend the whole evening just on this one section. But let's pick it apart um, section by section. First of all, he says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love, love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their award in full. In other words, there's, there are those that uh, for a show uh, make uh, you know, long prayers. They desire to be seen as righteous. They want some kind of earthly benefit for a life of piety, of prayerfulness. He said, don't do that. There should be to some degree a hiddenness to your prayer life. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Now, here we should not go too far and say we shouldn't have corporate prayer meetings. Clearly that can't be the case because there's so many positive examples in the book of Acts and other places of corporate prayer meetings, all right? Nothing wrong with that. It's clearly commended in the book of Acts. But Jesus is talking here about, you know, be careful not to do your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. What's your motive? I want people to see. And, you know, even in corporate prayer meetings, you know, if you have the gift of talk, you know, you might be tempted to make a showy prayer uh, so that people can think well of you. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that fundamentally, I believe that most of your praying should be a private affair between you and God, something that, frankly, most people would never even know happens. I just think statistically, numerically, the overwhelming majority of our prayers that go up to God would be private, secret things between us and God. And again, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you daily. I prayed while you were on the... There's nothing wrong with that. But what he's saying is that there should be this faith there's a me and God focus here, a focus on, on God and God alone. And this is something I'm doing toward him. And I don't care whether anybody thinks me pious or righteous or godly as I do this. That's not important to me. What matters is I'm talking to my heavenly father. Now, why is this passage included in tonight's study? Because Jesus is commanding us to pray here. You know, he, he does it a number of times here. He says, uh, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. So there's a command. You know, this then is how you should pray, verse 9, and then comes the Lord's Prayer. So he's commanding certain aspects of prayer. It should be by faith. It should not be to be seen by others so that people will think you pious or godly or righteous. It shouldn't be for that reason. There should be a, a secrecy or a hiddenness to a large part of your prayer life that nobody's watching. It's just something done between you and God. It's something that if you pray in that way, you will be lavishly and richly rewarded by God. 
both in this world and in the next. And then there's the Lord's Prayer. And I think at some point this summer we're going to go carefully through it and pick it apart. But uh, that's not my purpose right now. These are commands given by Jesus that we should pray. Uh, Paul also gives us commands in this way, uh, prayer uh, commanded in a certain manner. First Timothy 2 and verse 8, he says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Okay, there are numbers of body positions that are, are referred to in prayer. Kneeling, for example, it says in, in Ephesians, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name, Ephesians 3. So kneeling is commended. Uh, there also in the book of Acts, they knelt with the Apostle Paul on the beach to pray. So there's nothing wrong with kneeling. I think that's fine. In other places, Solomon or others stand to pray. And I think that seems to be the posture here. Men standing, lifting up uh, holy hands. But that's not really, I think, the point here. Paul's point here is that there should be an open and clear, loving, visible unity between the men of the church. They should be loving one another and in clear unity together. They should be praying without anger or disputing. So I think that's what he's getting at there. There should be prayers made without anger or disputing. Or again, this one, Colossians 4 and verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. All right, what does Colossians 4.2 commend? What attributes or aspects of prayer life does it commend to you here? Devotion to the practice, first of all. Okay, what does that mean to be devoted to prayer? Something that you do as commanded. Okay, so it's a... Okay. And we'll get to persistence in prayer. There's a lot of overlap in these categories, and it doesn't trouble me at all. But but the fact of the matter is there should be an aspect of devotion to it, a sense of, of uh, my heart wants to do that, and not, not grudgingly or under compulsion, as it says, for God loves a cheerful giver. There should be that aspect in your prayer life. I'm devoted to this. I look forward to my prayer times. I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, grieved that it's time to pray. Okay, what does it mean being watchful? What does that mean, being watchful? Okay, so alert to what needs prayer. You know, watch, look around and see people that need prayer and pray for them. Yes. I think it also has an aspect of expectancy that God will answer your prayer. That's right. That's right. You know, I'm going to wait on the Lord for this. God is going to answer in his own good time and I'm going to wait. Like Habakkuk says, you know, I'm going to wait for an answer, Lord. I'm going to station myself here and I'm going to stay here until you give me an answer. So there's a watchfulness. As opposed to, you know, uh, Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. What are they doing during the prayer time? (coughs) Have any of you had like really, really quiet, quiet times before? I mean, way too quiet. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? Okay. That is not good. You know, wow, a whole hour of prayer. No, I don't think so. (laughs) It's amazing how that time flies. You know, well, that's not good. I mean, the key is to be alert, all right? You may even need to get up and not kneel and walk around sometimes if it's too early in the morning or you're not a morning person. But the idea is that you are actively engaged. You know, that's part of the issue here. God doesn't need your prayers. That's one of the things I tried to get across. Just in a, in a sovereignty of God's sense, he doesn't need you to pray this thing. And if your prayer is going to be cold and detached and mechanical, don't bother. There's just no good that comes from that. The point is that you would present a heart of affection to God over the issue, saying, God, I love you and I love this person and I care about what we're talking Other than that, it, it, I really think it achieves nothing. It actually might achieve some harm, that your own heart could become more mechanical and distant toward that individual or that issue. 
So that I think when it says being watchful is that I care about this. This matters to me. And thankful. All right, that's so huge in the book of Colossians. But why should we be thankful in prayer? Yeah, there's a relationship there. I mean, we thank another person for some blessing given. There's faith involved in that, you know, that we're thanking God perhaps in advance for the answer, thanking God for the privilege of just praying about it, thanking God for the person and for the for the trial or the situation you're praying. Thanking about every, really everything could be grounds for thanksgiving. So that's a sweet attitude. But again, this is a prayer commanded in a certain manner. Or this one, Jude verse 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's going to say that in Ephesians 6, pray in the Spirit. Uh, what does that mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Yeah, Peggy. That's so powerful, and I hope you all heard what Peggy said. The fact is, it says in, in Romans chapter 8, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Lord has given the Holy Spirit to help us in that weakness. He helps us in every way in prayer, doesn't he? What to pray for and with what attitude to pray, the fire of the Spirit coming in. You're saying, Lord, my spirit's cold and distant. My heart is hard. Would you send now your Holy Spirit? that I might be filled with the fruit of the Spirit as I pray here, that I might be filled with love and tenderness toward this individual or person. Give me that. Pray in the Spirit. Adrian. Amen. Yeah, I, yeah, there's obviously, and I think it says in Corinthians, that the Spirit knows the mind of the Lord in a way we don't. And he has kind of free access to the mind of God in a way we never will. And so it's only in the spirit that we also, I think that's the implication of that Corinthians verse, have access to the mind of God and intimacy with God, really only through the Holy Spirit. So we, uh, we pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, I skipped the first phrase in Jude 20. It says, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. What does that mean? Again, we're talking about prayer commanded in a certain manner. So we're going to be praying in the spirit. Uh, but what does it mean to build yourselves up in the most holy faith or your most holy faith? Well, as you're thinking about it, I think there are two different ways we can understand this type of expression. One is that we would just have a strong faith. And, and by that, I mean a, a lively sense of the invisible spiritual world and of God's great love for us and, and of his future world and, and the, the heaven, new heaven, new earth, that we would just have that lively sense of the invisible, assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. That, that, that we would just have a vivid faith, a strong faith. There's that, that, that's possible. In other verses, we have uh, the issue of, of being strengthened in the faith. 
So the faith then would be a body of doctrines that we identify as Christian, Christian theology. And to, to grow in the faith, uh, you know, on, on our internal, external journey there, we've got Acts 16.5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and we're increasing in number daily. So strengthened in the faith means they're growing in their doctrinal understanding of God. They're growing in, in theology. <clears throat> they're, they're getting strong in the inner man through right teaching. I think that would be a good way to say it. Okay, so either way, you know, it's a good thing, okay? I think the two are obviously intimately connected because they're based on the word. Either way, it's the word-based. So build yourself up in your most holy faith, I think, is study the word of God, study the scriptures, and get strong in the Bible and uh, pray in the Holy Spirit. Susan? And I think if you read the whole context there in Jude, uh, you're talking about false teachers that have a terrible effect on the church and they're teaching false doctrines. And so the verse begins with the contrast, but you don't be like that. Don't, don't be led astray by false doctrines. Build yourself up in right doctrine and based on that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pray. That's what we're getting at. Peggy? That's right. There's so much emptiness, so much brokenness around us. And uh, for us to, to realize what an incredible gift we've been given in Christ, that uh, our, our lives are, are not empty of meaning, neither are, will our deaths be empty of meaning. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's, a, it's not an empty thing at all when God takes one of us out of the world, but actually filled with meaning and with love. Uh, but for a non-Christian to die, it's really a, a display of God's wrath and judgment, I believe. So um, I, I think we're freed, thank God, from the responsibility of, of applying that specifically to people's names. I don't know for sure who goes to hell, let's put it that way. That's something only Jesus knows. But I do know that there's a trajectory of a life that's lived openly for the glory of God, and it's a great danger to any individual to not live like that. And uh, so we need to warn people that they should not live lives apart from Christ, definitely. But we are freed from that. Instead, we are given uh, right doctrine, we're given the right, right teaching of the apostles. We're given the scripture. And in that, we're taught, taught how to pray, aren't we? We're told what we should be praying for. And later in the summer, we're going to be studying how the apostle Paul and uh, others prayed and learning how to pray from their intercessions, uh, what kinds of things they prayed for. Um, we're not left adrift in that. We know what to pray for. So we should build ourselves up in our most holy faith and uh, pray in the Holy Spirit. All right, third category are certain character traits that are needed for prayer, you know, similar to being commanded in a certain manner. Um, 
But uh, I think this is just direct statements. Uh, Romans 12, 12. I was talking to Landis about this verse as we walked up. Uh, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Okay? Let's take the last one since it's the one clearly about prayer. We should be faithful in prayer. That's a command to pray, really. Um, And so what does it mean to be faithful in prayer? What do you think of when you think of somebody who's a faithful man or a faithful woman? Dedicated, okay. Matthew, what does that mean to you if somebody's faithful? Continuous in action, never giving up. They don't give up when it, it gets hard. Adrian? Okay, they're committed. You could entrust a faithful person with something and you just know it's going to get done. They're faithful to it, all right? So for us, this is, again, touching on that topic we're going to deal with very openly in a few minutes, and that is the need for persistence or perseverance in prayer. But what Paul's saying here is that, you know, we're given this task or this responsibility of prayer. And, uh, you know, he wants us to be faithful in it. In other words, to, to continue to do it even, uh, you know, if it goes on a long time. Okay, then James 1, 6 through 8. Uh, we'll get to James 1, 5 in a moment, uh, which is you should ask for wisdom. But uh, when he asks, it says he should believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed uh, by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, this isn't directly a command to pray, but it's pretty close. Uh, when he asks, it says... All right, but what do, what, do the, what do these verses tell us should characterize our prayer lives? When he asks, he should believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Peggy. Faithful. Okay. Okay, and there I'm going to take, and take the word full of faith, I think, at that point. In other words, we should be praying filled with faith and not tossed about by doubts. Now, why are doubts so damaging to a prayer life? Clearly, James is just coming right after this and saying, don't even think you're going to get anything from God. He openly says that. You don't, th- don't, don't imagine you're going to get anything from God if you pray like this. Why not? Why is God so insistent that we be filled with faith? Yes, Adrian. That's right. That's right. So we've got to believe that he exists and gives these rewards, all right? More thoughts on this? If you're not filled with faith, your prayer life is shot. It doesn't exist, really. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I know what I'm struggling with is I'm afraid, assuming I'm not going to receive what I'm praying for, and that's completely wrong. Boy, I struggle with that one. Yeah, it's like, Lord, I know you're not going to give it to me, but, you know, it's like, well, in effect, James is telling us what what should we do at that moment. Stop praying, right? Just stop, okay? Because there's no point in continuing. And what you need to do is say, okay, if if I know he's not going to give it to me, then either it not it's not a good thing, or it is a good thing, but something's wrong with my thoughts about God, and I just need to go back and work on my own heart. Go ahead, Flynn. No, that's, that's very true, and that's why he teaches us faith like a mustard seed. It, it really isn't amount, uh, about an amount or quantity. It's not that. It's just a basic concept in your mind. God rules all things, can do anything at all. Yes, go ahead. David, Psalm 5, 
read, in the morning I will order my prayer to thee and eagerly watch. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Yes, sir. A man of God I knew one time was asked, if you needed something from God and didn't feel like you had the faith, what would you do? Said I'd act like I had the faith. <laughs> act like you have it. Or maybe you can just start by saying, Lord, give me the faith I need to proceed and make this prayer time worthwhile. In any case, we should ask. I mean, God gives faith, doesn't he? I mean, is he the one that gives it to begin with? And if we lack faith, we should, uh, you know. Remember that man who said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's a good prayer. What he said a moment before, that wasn't so good. If you can do anything, can you please help? That wasn't a good moment, all right? That was a bad moment. And I think that the fact of the matter is, if we come with God, you know, if you can do anything, would you mind, you know, helping? Well, that is not the God of the Bible, the God who, if you can do anything, all right? This is a God who created heaven and earth out of nothing with a mere command. There is nothing he cannot do. All right, so that's what he's getting. Faith, yeah, we just have to trust that God is going to do it. If it's according to his will, he will hear us. All right, then First John uh, 3, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, First Peter 3, 7. Now, this is a very important verse for me and my marriage in particular. Um, you know, I, I just... Many of us don't think of this in terms of the, of the aspect of prayer, but this is a verse that talks about the prayer life between a husband and wife. And it says, Husbands, it says, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, I don't think any married couple can't testify to the fact that if you're not doing well in your relationship, it's kind of hard to pray together. And that if, you know, if the husband hasn't been living according to knowledge or with consideration with his wife, it's really going to be tough for the two of you to go before the throne of grace. And so what character traits are being commended here? All right. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. What what is Peter getting at, Adrian? Be considerate of your mate. Yeah, be careful, considerate of your of your wife in this case. All right. Does how you live affect your prayer life? What do you think? I will never forget this quote by John Bunyan, the author of, of Pilgrim's Progress. He said, sin drives out prayer or prayer drives out sin. Now, you think about that. I mean, that is, that is a tremendous quote. I think about it frequently. Sin drives out prayer or prayer drives out sin. They're really enemies. And it's really just a restatement of, of the spirit and the flesh and, and you know, uh, conflict uh, in uh, Galatians 5. But, I mean, it focuses there on prayer. And it's so true. It's very, very hard to pray when you're living carnally it's hard to pray you feel like you're not welcome you're not worthy all these kind of things come so that nothing will hinder your prayers be careful how you live so that nothing will hinder your prayers look at this next one from peter also same kind of idea only this doesn't isn't connected to marriage it's just talking about any person anyone all the time somebody read this first peter four four seven What do you get out of that verse, Jeremy? What does that What does that tell you? So that you can pray. What What is that? Okay. So if you're leading the kind of life in which you have a sense of the imminent return of Christ, or the imminent imminent end of the world, or the imminent end of your own life, ready for your own death. 
You're going to live a serious-minded life and have done with lesser things. You're going to be putting sin to death, etc. That kind of life leads well to prayer. But clearly what he's saying here is be alert, be uh, clear-minded, I guess, and self-controlled so that you can pray. If you are weighed down by dissipation and by earthly and worldly concerns and sins, you're not going to be able to pray. So again, both 1 Peter 3, 7, the husband and wife verse, and 1 Peter 4, 7 imply that how you live day to day and hour to hour affects your prayer life. If you're having a hard time praying, uh, then uh, look to how you've been living. And it may be that you need to start with some serious time of confession and get your heart right before God because it's just going to be hard to pray otherwise. All right? And, you know, you could say so that you can pray. We need to know that we're forgiven. We need to just forget all this. We just need to instantly feel that we're forgiven. Well, Peter doesn't think so. He says, you know, be careful how you're living so you can pray. If you don't live carefully, you may not be able to pray at all. And I think we've all found that to be the case. All right? Next. Yes, sir. Amen. Well, I can't thank you enough for saying that because that's a perfect segue to our next category. All right? We ought to be praying for what he's doing in the world. We ought to be praying for his will, according to his will. And what he is doing, if you talk about redemptive history, it's called redemptive history because God is redeeming lost people, sinners, and bringing them into the kingdom. And so many of our prayers should be directed toward that grand endeavor. Many of our prayers should be, I mean, and it could be a detail, some aspect, you know, some missionary team has asked requests so that they can get this or that materials or they're trying to prepare this, fine. But it's all toward the end that lost people will be redeemed. And so many of the commands, the open commands of, uh, of the New Testament are geared toward uh, the advance of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus' statement here in, in Matthew 9, uh, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And here's the command, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So there's a command to pray. But what's it a command for, uh, to pray for what? I mean, what are we praying for in this, in Matthew 9? For disciples, okay? Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, laborers, yeah. People who are ready to serve the Lord in the harvest field, all right? By the way, you know, if you're praying a prayer like this fervently, you know, you're going to be one of those laborers. You know it. I mean, see the wisdom of God. Send somebody else. You know, here I am, send somebody else, you know. Send some laborers, O oh Lord, you know. Well, how the Lord does catch us, doesn't he, you know. You're praying for something and it's like, why can't I go, you know. So, but at any rate, we should be praying. And, and frankly, all, all humor aside, there are going to be many, many things you can pray for that you know that you're not called to go. You just know. Um, you could be praying for 10 different mission fields in one prayer time. And you know you're not called to go to all 10 of those. You're just not. But you can be praying for laborers for each of them. And so the Lord has called on us to do that. Uh, this one in Romans 15. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. What a great verse that is. How many laborers for the Lord are out in the field going through a struggle and they are asking for prayer? They're asking for prayer. Join me in my struggle. 
by praying to God for me. All right, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. So he's very specific about what kind of prayers. But then these become patterns of how we can pray for missionaries or other people doing work for the kingdom. We should be joining people's struggle by praying. Ephesians 6 is very famous. I mentioned it earlier and I'll just, we'll just openly quote it. Um, it says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So what Paul's talking about there in Ephesians 6 is praying for his apostolic preaching of the cross, of the gospel. Pray that I might... What what aspect, what attribute is he praying for there? Courage, Courage, boldness, fearlessness, right? It's like, well, he's the apostle Paul. Does he struggle with fearfulness? Apparently he did. He's a human being. We all struggle with fearing men more than we fear God. So he said, you know, I want you to pray that I would be fearless, bold in my proclamation of the gospel. So, similar thing in Colossians. Somebody read this if you would. Colossians 4, 3, and 4. Of course, brothers, so that God may open a door for our message so that you may proclaim the mystery of Christ, which I am the chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So, just go to the last verse. He prayed for boldness, courage, fearlessness in Ephesians. What does he pray for here in Colossians for his preaching? Clarity. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. All right, so boldness and clarity. So that's that's powerful. He's praying that that the messengers of the gospel should uh, make it clear. By the way, I mean, I would ask you to pray that for me, that whenever I preach on Sundays, that I would preach boldly and clearly, as I should. All right, that's what he says. What does he say, say, say earlier in Colossians 4, 3, and 4? What, what else does he pray for? Not just that he would pr- uh, proclaim it clearly as he should, but what else? Fearlessly, okay. What's that? Opportunity. opportunity. So, Barbara, what is he, how does he communicate that, that he's praying for opportunities here? Open a door. So what does that mean, an open door of ministry? He talks about the open door a lot of times. Sometimes you even hear the church of the open door. You know, that's probably from the book of Revelation, Philadelphia. I've set a door in front of you open that no one can shut. What is that referring to? Adrian. Okay, Grace. Okay, more thoughts on this. An open door of ministry. What does that refer to? That the Holy Spirit would go before and prepare people's hearts to okay. receive the message. Okay, so hearts are prepared for the message. All right. I think of open door as a providential opportunity where kind of everything fits together. You know, Henry Blackaby in, in Experiencing God talks about just markers that just line up and point clearly in a certain way. I think God does sometimes speak through providence. And just says, boy, that's just such an opportunity. You know, when, uh, you know, uh, a man from Macedonia says, come over and help us, you know, or can anyone, or, or the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, could somebody explain this text to me? I don't know what this is. This Isaiah 53, please tell me what it means. I mean, that's an open door. You know, you've got to, you've got to jump through doors like that. And, and I pray for that. When I go on, on airplanes or different things, when I know I'm going to have a chance to witness, I say, God, give me an opportunity. Give me an opening. Give me a chance. Don't give me a, a business person with their headphones on and laboring on a laptop. I can't do anything with that. What can I do with that? You know, I could say, hey, 
you're going to thank me for this. Shut it. Pull out the... You're going to thank me. You're probably angry right now, but you're going to thank me later. Now, hear the word of the Lord. Go ahead and try it sometime. I never have tried it, but uh, I don't think it's going to go over too well. That's not an open door, okay? That will soon be a closed door, all right? But, uh, you know, open door means an open heart, people ready to hear. Hearts are ready. Pray for that. Pray for that. You should be praying for these things and that we uh, should proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then just simply, 1 Thessalonians 5.25, brothers, pray for us. All right? That's just one of those little pithy things at the end of 1 Thessalonians. It's just, just anything, just something, something good. Pray for us. Uh, keep us in mind. 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, similar thing. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may speed rapidly and be honored just as it was with you and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not everyone has faith. Boy, there's so much truth in those two verses. Powerful truths. What is he praying for in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1? What's, what's there? What is he asking for? Pray that our message may what? What does it say? Just go like wildfire. That we, it might be like a revival. It might just speed on, run that it might go quickly, and that it might be honored. Now, what does that mean? Pray that our message may be honored or held in esteem. They would see the gospel as true, powerful. Do you not see how this testifies to the sovereignty of God and salvation? Pray that God may work in someone's heart that they might honor the gospel. I mean, that's a powerful testimony of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Pray that God would so work in the hearts of, an unbe- uh, hearts of unbelievers that they might honor the gospel, that it might be honored as it was with you, that they might see that it is not the word of men, but it is, in fact, the word of God that can save them. Pray for that. I mean, that's, these are the kind of things we should be praying for missionaries, for pastors, for your, each other, for one another. We should be praying for each other uh, that we might have this kind of fruitfulness. I yearn for a fruitful, evangelistically fruitful church, don't you? And I think that God's going to do it, but he's going to do it here in answer to prayer. I really believe that. The testimony from church history and from Scripture is, is always the same, that God pours out these kinds of blessings on people who ask him for them and who ask consistently for them. So if you want to lead someone to Christ, then ask him for it. And if it takes two years of asking before you finally get to lead someone to Christ, then ask for two years. And if you want to just expand beyond yourself to pray for your other brothers and sisters here, that they may also lead someone to Christ. I would love every member of this church to lead someone to Christ in the next five years. We would be so busy baptizing people. All right, that would be so awesome. Why not ask him for it? Pray that God's word would be honored among your neighbors or among your co-workers, somebody. All right, any other thoughts about Second Thessalonians? Pray for the advance of the gospel. Adrian, yes, sir. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's true. And then the last little fragment there is really pretty vital in the Calvinistic or reform system. When you say not everyone has faith, the basic Arminian or free will teaching is that every human being has faith, but only some people use it. Have you ever heard that? All right. It's like part of the original human equipment, but only the believers use it. Well, this verse says, no, mm -mm. not everyone has faith. Some have it and some don't. Well, then the question is, where did those that have it, where did they get it? 
Well, we know from Ephesians 2 they get it from the Lord. It's a gift of God. So if you have faith, thank God. And if a brother or sister has faith, thank God. It came from God. Anyway, more we can say a lot more on that. But long story short, this whole section is a sovereignty of God or Calvinistic or whatever section. You are praying to God that the gospel would be advanced and would be fruitful. You're asking God to do that. You're not trusting in men. You're trusting in God. And how powerful is that? All right, next category, prayer in trying circumstances. Well, what are trying circumstances? Well, there are lots of them. <laughs> do you have any? Are you going through any trials, going through any difficulties? All right, you, you ought to pray. That's kind of the teaching of the New Testament. If you're going through difficult trials, you ought to pray. Uh, why don't we just get to that verse that says it openly? Is anyone? Yeah, here, uh, page four. James 5, 13 through 16. It just says it quite directly. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. There you go. <laughs> I, I just love it. I mean, just tell me what to do, God. I did. All right? If you're in trouble, you ought to pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to anoint him with oil and pray over him and anoint him. Sorry, pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That passage is filled with commands for prayer. You know, if you're in trouble, you should pray. If you're sick, you should call the elders to pray for you. Uh, there's a little promise there. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And therefore, we should pray for each other and confess our sins to each other, etc., so there's, this is a life of, and this is very much a church passage on prayer. Do you see it? It's not just an individual thing, but we should be caring for each other, lifting each other up in prayer. You know, the elders should be praying for the sick, that kind of thing. All right. Uh, many, many others. Uh, Matthew, on the previous page, you should pray for your, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a command. So if you're going through persecution, Jesus' answer is pray for those people. Pray for them. All right, pray that your flight will not take place in the winter on the Sabbath. That's an interesting verse. Just skip that one. We can talk about that another time, but it is a command to pray. All right, but uh, moving on. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's that referring to? What's the context? Jesus in Gethsemane, who's he talking to? Peter, James and John, especially Peter. Why? Because he's about to go through, let's face it, the worst night of his life. I think you would have to say if you got Peter right before he died and say, you know, as you look back on your life, what was the worst time of your life? You'd say denying Jesus three times. That was that was a low point for me. It was the worst night of my life. How was Peter getting ready for the worst night of his life? Well, he was dozing. <laughs> okay, he was. And Jesus is exhorting him here. You're underestimating the trial you're about to go through. You ought to be getting ready by praying. All right. So as you anticipate difficult trials, should they have anticipated difficult trials? Should Peter have anticipated that a tough time is coming? Did he have good reason to anticipate or did this come out of nowhere? It came out of the blue. No, Jesus had been telling them for a couple of years what was going to happen clearly. And it was escalating. He was very clear what would happen when he would go to Jerusalem. Very clear. I mean, verbally clear. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. They will arrest him. They will condemn him. And they will crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. I mean, they should have known. Instead, Peter's dozing. And what he's saying is, watch and pray. All right? That's a command. We need to, when you, when you see a trial coming, get ready through prayer. All right? Um, 
Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Very famous. Somebody read this, if you would. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I think many people have probably just memorized those verses. I mean, those are just very, very sweet verses. It's definitely a command to pray. You know, you shouldn't be anxious, but you should uh, entrust or commit your your request to God, and God will give you peace, and he will answer your prayers, okay? Uh, prayer for specific spiritual blessings. I only found one in the command type, um, but that's this, James 1.5. Uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. You know, you could find some of the other uh, prayers, like for the advance of the gospel, that might fit in this category. But if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. Um, you should ask God, but you should do it, as he says later, as we already covered, with faith, knowing that he will give you that wisdom. And then, as we touched on many times, there is the need for persistence in prayer. I already quoted this, Luke 18, 1, that Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And then First uh, Thessalonians uh, five seventeen. more, uh, I think, better translation would be pray without ceasing, I think. Now, the question, and this comes across hugely in the book of Psalms, why do you need persistence or perseverance in prayer? Why is that character trait so important in the issue of prayer? Okay. Okay, because, you know, he's always praying for us. We should imitate him. Yes? Mm-hmm. That you continue to pray. See, but that's the key. All right, that's the key. He has not what answered yet. Who prays for what he got a year ago? All right, you're done with that. You got it. You can thank God, but you don't tend to pray for it anymore. You know, married people don't pray that they would get a wife. Their wives would be offended. Besides which, polygamy is illegal in this country. So that prayer, that time is done. Instead, we thank God for the wife that God gave, but we're done praying for it. You understand? Why then do you need perseverance and persistence in prayer? Because God makes you wait. And why does he make you wait? Why does he, why didn't he just, as soon as you ask, boom, it's done. Could he do that? As soon as you ask, if he's intending to give it anyway, I'm not talking about wicked, evil things or whatever. I'm just talking about a good thing that he is planning on giving you a year from now. Why does he make you pray for a year for it? Why didn't he give it today? It's his plan. Okay, he's got a plan. You'll be even more excited than if you got everything instantly. Yes. He's as concerned about what we're asking for as he is about a relationship with him in the process of it. That's right. That's right. And we need to understand who he is in that relationship. He is a king. If he instantly gave you everything you asked, would you not be tempted to kind of reverse the order there and see who's the real king here? And who's the foot slave, all right? God is no one's foot slave. And so he does make us wait so that we adjust our hearts and stand under his mighty hand that in due time he may raise us up. And he lingers. There's people with cancer that he's going to heal and it might take longer than anyone wants, but he makes us wait. He makes us wait. There are people that are waiting for a mate and they want to know why is it taking so long? I remember in seminary, a lot of single guys down that hall. I was you know, a single men's dorm and... Many of them were trusting God, waiting on a, on a mate. Been waiting for years. Some of those guys were in their early 30s. Very, very tough for them. Waiting and waiting. Other, other kinds of things. God could give it, but he doesn't. 
And there's so many reasons why, but at least this much we know. You've got to pray and not give up. If you give up, uh, you know, God will not be honored and glorified. And finally, God gives us commands to pray for certain kinds of people. Uh, pray for us, whoever us is. <laughs> no one knows who us is in that verse, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews and his co-workers, okay? <laughs> but I guess the idea is, you know, there are categories of people, you know, that are doing Christian labor, etc. Um, uh, and then clearly in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 1 through 4, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Uh, but specifically for kings and those in authority, that, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we should be praying for those in political authority, presidents, governors, kings. Uh, God could surprise us and somebody who we might think could never be converted. God could powerfully convert them. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for these many commands that we have to pray. I pray that we would just simply obey them. I really do. I pray that by faith we would say, Lord, you have commanded in many, many places that we should pray in many different ways. Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, help us to drive out unbelief by the clear teaching of the word. Help us instead of being wavering, quavering, weak Christians, instead that we would stand firm on the rock who is Christ and on his word and that we would make intercession and prayer uh, for the advance of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.